Hear the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The, the, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're doing well today. As you know, as you've heard by reading the, hearing the scripture that was just read, today is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, this is the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem that starts the celebration of our Holy Week. And I must admit something. This is a time of confession for me. I'm going to admit this to all of you guys. And I hate to admit this, but I want us to have a culture here of openness and confession. So I'm going to admit this. I admit to all of you that I had a conversation, I had a meeting with Pastor Danny and Pastor Eric earlier, maybe a couple weeks ago. And I said, listen guys, Palm Sunday is coming and we need to do something big for it. Now in my mind I'm thinking, like we're coming off a season of COVID, we're a little down, a little pandemic depression still in here, so, and we haven't done much together as a church. So I'm thinking, what, we, should, we should do something big. I don't know what, but we should do something big. And I can see Pastor Eric's mind just, his eyes are like, Big and his mind's going and Pastor Eric's thinking, oh no, Pastor Lawrence wants me to go hire a donkey to come in. I, I guarantee that's what's going on in his mind. And I'm looking at Pastor Danny and he's thinking, oh man, what sort of mess are we going to have here? What's, what's Lawrence going to get me into? And his mind's just turning and turning. Now I share this as a confession time because I know that we don't need a donkey. Danny's like, yes, we don't need a donkey in here. And I don't, I, I know we die. I know some people disagree. I thought he would have been cool. But I would have been like, the ones who think he's cool, they're the ones who gotta clean up the poop that I left behind. But here's the thing we don't need a donkey, we don't need hoopla, we don't need fanfare to make real and important to us the significance of Palm Sunday. But I was tempted to do it that way. I'll admit that, that's my temptation. Because I like spectacle. I do. I love spectacle. I love being over the top. I enjoy loudness and excitement. And most of you guys are like, yes, that's true. And I, I'll tell you what, if I would have been in Jerusalem that day, I would have been the one going crazy and yelling Hosanna and waving palm branches. I wouldn't even know what's going on. I'd be like, are we yelling in the streets? Woo, let's go. And I would have cut some branches myself. It would have been amazing. And it's festive to me. I love festive occasions. I love having big expectations too. Like, I, like, you know, there's a party coming. I love getting excited about party. Or if there's a vacation or there's a trip or something big. I like making a big deal out, out of something and getting really excited about things. But the reality is, right, when you have big expectations, you can also have big disappointments. Is that right? My wife is one of those people. She's one of those people that says she'd rather not look forward to something too much and just rather like look forward to a small amount. But if it's awesome, great. But she's also prepared for the worst. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? Me, I'm like, no, I just look forward. It's going to be as big as possible. It's going to be epic. It's going to be huge. And if it is epic and huge, I'm like, woohoo! And if it's not epic and huge, I'm like, I'll tell people it was epic and huge. And, you know? It's just, it's just reality. That's who I am, you know? But I love it when it does happen the way you want it to happen. It's so cool, isn't it? Like when you pump it up really big, that's that big national championship game and you're so excited until it goes into overtime and you're like, that was the most epic game. Or that party that you're looking forward to or that first date that you wanted to have or whatever it may be. And it comes to this, it's so awesome. But what's tough, right, is when you're looking forward to something, you're anticipating something and it doesn't happen. Not only does it not happen the way you want it, but it happens the complete worst case scenario. Then that kind of stinks, right? That's a bummer. It's a letdown. And here's this incredible tale of Palm Sunday. It tells a tale of unbelievably incredible great expectations and hosannas and exclamations of praise and glory. But at the same time, just less than a week later, we see a tale of hosannas going into crucifixion. Not necessarily from the same people, but we see a mood in the city of great expectation turning into utter disappointment. But, but, is that what actually happened on Palm Sunday? See, it's a sobering reminder about what happens to a group of very religious people when you raise their expectations of a major triumph to the roof at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week, you dash those hopes. And even the inner circle, even the disciples, denied, deserted, betrayed by Thursday. Now, what the author of the text really wants us to get, wants us to realize from the outset, what I want you guys to understand from the very beginning is this. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations or those from from the early Jews. He came to meet our needs. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. He did not come because he wanted everybody to wave palm branches and have a big party. He came to meet our needs. He didn't come to slay our foes and lift us high. He didn't come to kick out the Romans and make the Jewish empire bigger. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for sin. For at the root, the real heart issue, the human dilemma, is not our circumstantial problems that we face in life, not our political situations, not our circumstances, but the real heart problem is our sin sickness. And he came to meet that need. And in this short passage, I want us to see three things very clearly. The first thing is this, verses 1 through 3, is that Jesus makes it really clear that he is coming as king. So verses 1 through 3, he makes it very clear that he's one, he's coming as king. It's very deliberate. He's deliberately making that claim that he's the king. And then in verses 4 through 7, you'll see that Jesus deliberately comes as king according to scripture. So the second point, he does everything according to scripture. Everything Jesus does here and plans to do in advance is deliberately purposed to fulfill scripture. This is so huge for you guys to understand. So he's coming as king. He's coming deliberately as a fulfillment of scripture. And in verses 8 through 11, there's a response to his coming. Which reminds us that we all also have a response. Are going to have to respond to the coming of the king. So one, he's coming as king. Two, he's coming according to scripture. And three, we're going to see the response of the people and also the call, that we're, how we're called to respond. So those are three major points I want to get at today, so we're going to dive into them. Jesus in this passage clearly directs our attention to this kind of overriding question that's at the heart of this whole passage, is who is this? All right, that's when you read the, heard the scripture read to us, that's the question that just kind of pops out, isn't it? Who is this? And even Matthew's questions in the crowd tips you off to that, that is a central question to this passage. 
The whole point of this passage is to take stock. Who is this Jesus? And what is he about? Because the question of who Jesus is, guys, can I tell you, was not just so important to the Jewish people back then, but it's still the most important question for us now. It's of the utmost importance. It has eternal significance. It's a question of life and death, heaven and hell. He's focusing their attention then to the readers of the Bible then and also to us readers now. Our attention up to this point, Matthew's been talking about the prophecies fulfilled from Isaiah, that he is the Messiah. He's been teaching of this new kingdom, this kingdom that flips the world upside down. But then we're getting to this kind of climactic point in all the text. And the question is, you've heard about Jesus. He fulfills scripture. He teaches an upside down kingdom. Now to you, to us, the reader, to you now, who is Jesus? Who do you really believe that Jesus is? Are you, really stake, are you willing to stake your life on that? So number one, he's coming he, as a proclaimed king. In this passage, the first thing you're going to see is Jesus is claimed to be king. So if you look at verses, verse 2, it says this, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Why did Jesus ask for this? I mean, he was very, very specific in his request. And I mean, I get it. If I'm Jesus, I would rather ride than walk, right? Maybe not a donkey. I don't feel like donkeys would be comfortable. I'm just throwing that out there. I've never rode a donkey before. If you rode a donkey, you might be like, no, they're very comfortable to ride, right? But I don't know. I'd rather ride a car, but that's just me. And I get it. Riding is better than walking, right? I'd much rather ride something than walk. I get it. But you got to understand something here. Jesus just walked all the way from Galilee to Bethany. And he's all the way walked from Bethany to within two miles. He's less than two miles away from Jerusalem. And suddenly he's like, now we should ride. And you're just like, what? He's just walked this whole way. You're only two, two miles out. Why do you now want to ride? He's already walked his whole way. So he has a reason for it. It's a very deliberate reason. Not to mention, not only has he walked all this way, he's also with a bunch of other people. So it's kind of weird to be like, hey, we've all walked all this way. We're only two miles away now. And um, I want to ride now, but you guys can keep on walking. There's a deliberateness there. It wasn't just he's just tired of walking. He was making a statement. And here's one thing that we often, people often get wrong with this passage. Most people think, oh, he rode a donkey. That means he's humble. Right? The donkey symbolizes, and you've probably heard a sermon like that before. And I'm not saying there's, that's wrong. I'm not saying that's not the truth. Because it has a little bit of truth to it. But what's actually emphasized, what's most important about the element that he rode on a donkey is not that it's humble. It's his proclamation of being a king is the most important point that he was making. If you read verse 5, it says, Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. But you need to understand first that, that as you look back in the biblical world for over 2,000 years, it's actually very common for kings and rulers and judges to ride in on donkeys. It actually happened in the Old Testament multiple times. Numerous examples of rulers who rode in on donkeys, specifically David. A donkey was considered a perfectly appropriate royal animal. So what Jesus is actually making, he's not saying, by riding a donkey, he's not saying, look how humble I am. He's literally saying that I'm the king. Don't miss that. Don't miss that statement. He's proclaiming kingship right away by him riding on the donkey. And that's, the, the crowd gets it. The crowd understands. The crowd cries out, behold, your king is coming from Zion. It's Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's clear that the crowd gets the king symbolism here. Jesus is proclaiming to be king. But what he is and what he does is, what he's, what he's doing is saying, I'm not the king, that kind of king that you expected. I'm not the materialistic, 
militaristic messiah who's going to come and kick after your political oppressors, the, the Romans, and reestablish the old school way of doing things. I'm not that kind of messiah. I'm not the messiah you're expecting. I'm the messiah you need. I'm not the king you're expecting. I'm not riding in a stallion and chariots with a huge sword and a javelin and, and armies behind me coming and saying, I've got to conquer everybody. And, and those Roman soldiers are centurions stand no chance against me. Because our need was for much more than just Roman deliverance. As we needed a king to deliver us from sin and Satan's hold. And that king, and the only way that king could do it is by opening the scroll. And the way he can open the scroll is by offering his life as a living sacrifice of being a ransom for many. A military king couldn't give you that. But a humble, humble king who died upon the cross can deliver us from the sin that captured us. See guys, he was a king that came and he proclaimed it bold. He said it, he knew it. Everywhere people said, oh, Jesus never proclaimed to be anything but a teacher. That is incorrect. Because a good teacher would have known everything that this symbolized. He came as king. Second point, he came according to scripture. From the beginning of this text, it's plenty said Jesus clearly planned all of this. And you can see how he does it. He tells the disciples to go to Bethphage and they'll find a donkey and a colt tied there and to bring it to him. Now Jesus is doing this as a humble king according to scripture. He's very explicitly doing this um, according to scripture. He's following what scripture says. Now I love how this passage says this. He says, go to the village and tell them that if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs these animals. It's almost like a kind of a powerful feel to it. It's almost like these are not the droids you're looking for. You know, has that kind of, you know, that kind of feel to it, right? But that's not how we're supposed to read it, I think. I think it's more Jesus has, he actually made these plans ahead of time. You know, I think without the disciples' knowledge, he was like contacted, I don't know how they contact people back then. They're like, send the messenger or something and said, hey, I want you to have this prepared for me. It's kind of like what he did when he made an arrangement for the upper room. The disciples didn't know, but Jesus went ahead and made plans for the upper room. What lets you know that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He went ahead and he made plans. And he said, there's an owner and he's going to have a donkey and a colt. He's going to be prepared for me. Not a magical, it's just waiting for me. But he actually made preparations for it. What exactly the way it's happening is the way that Jesus wanted it to happen. One of the things that you're going to start learning, I hope, today on this Sunday of Passion Week is that none of the things that are going to happen happen without Jesus being in control. He's planning it all. He's planning every bit of it. Let me explain this a little further this way. In fact, if you, if you, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn a little further ahead to Matthew chapter 26, right? So we're in chapter 21 right now on Sunday. Chapter 26 is Wednesday. In chapter 6 through 26, um, in two days it says, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified, Jesus says. But now listen to what happens next. If you look at verse 5, the chief priests are gathered together. So Jesus just said, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified. Now in verse 5, the chief priests are gathered together with Caiaphas and plotted to arrest Jesus by stealth. And they kill him. And, but then they decide, you know what, not during the feast. Let's not do it this week. Not during feast week. I mean, people are going to go crazy, right? Let's not do it this week. But do you get what that means, Right? Jesus says, in two days, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried in a mock court. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be suffered. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But the people who are planning it are like, oh, let's, let's not do it this week. In other words, if I could put it this, this way, Jesus is saying, he's got a plan. My time has come. And there's not whatever the priests want, whatever they plan is not what's going to happen. It's what Jesus planned. And Jesus is in control. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is not a victim of the Romans. 
He's not a victim of the high priests. He's not a victim of the Sanhedrin. He's not a victim of the Pharisees. Jesus is in complete control. He's fulfilling scripture. So he reason he tells them, go get that donkey and call that tied together at the village. I've already talked to their owners. I've already got it arranged. I, I told them that maybe he paid them in advance or he made a deal and I'll give it back to them in advance. But what he's doing is telling them that this is what I've already had planned. This is not out of my control. I'm walking in the steps of my father. And he's called me to do this. And I love this about fulfilling prophecy. See, Jesus sets up this exchange with the owner of the donkey and the colt ahead of time. He didn't do it because he knew he was going to be tired. He did it because he was claiming to be king and because he was fulfilling scripture. Now, the scripture quoted here is Zechariah. And it's speaking about this coming judgment and rise of Zion's king. Do you understand that there's two truths simultaneously happening right now? It's one, Jesus fulfills scripture. He came in, Zechariah said the king will come in. Look, Zion, he came to rise, riding on the donkey and a colt. He fulfills that scripture. He came in on a donkey. He is the promised one. He's the promised Messiah foretold, and he fulfilled it. But two, simultaneously at the same time, Jesus fulfilled scripture as well. You're like, what? He just said the same thing again, a little differently. A little different accent there. What are you talking about? He not only fulfilled scripture, but he lived by scripture. Here's what I mean by that. He was a fulfillment of scripture. Scripture happened, but he also made sure to live by the scripture to fulfill it. Do you guys get the difference? Do you guys get what I'm saying? He fulfilled scripture because he was born in Bethlehem. It foretold that, right? He didn't have a choice. We'll talk about birth of Jesus' choice. That's kind of weird. Deeper theological conversation with us another time. But he fulfilled prophecy of being born in Bethlehem. But he intentionally walked in and followed the word of God to fulfill the scripture by making this happen. Does that make sense? Do you guys get what I'm saying? He knew this prophecy in Zechariah and he took steps to fulfill it. And I want to say this because I just want to pause and say this because this is so important for us to understand. In our day and time, there are all sorts of persuasive, influential voices that claim to be a Christian but that will make statements like, listen to my compassionate, heartfelt thinking and authority over the word of God. There are voices out there that say stuff like, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really believe in the Bible. Or things like, strict adherence to the Bible is a form of idolatry. But here is Jesus, over and over and over again, not only fulfilling scripture, but living by scripture. He lives his life according to the word of God. If the spirit is the author of the word of God, and he is, we'll never speak against the word of God. And if Jesus is the author of the word, if he is the word, then he'll never speak against the word. So what I mean by that is, is Jesus himself decided that the word was so important that he had to walk in and to fulfill it, then we also need to find the word of God so important. Do you guys hear that? Do you hear what I'm saying by that? He's deliberate here. He's making a claim to be king, but he's rooting that claim in the Bible. He's not saying, I'm king because look how good I am or look how just I am or by my actions or my arguments are so much more philosophically oriented and persuasive. He's making his arguments claimed on the God of the scriptures speaking to his people through the word. Do you get what I'm saying by that, my people? Is we live in a day and age where there's so many good philosophies, incredible arguments, wonderful things that are being said by a lot of people that honestly can resonate in our hearts. But we should always take it against the word of God. 
and always make sure that the Word of God, whose very revelation, written Word, the Spirit-filled Word that God has given to us is what stays paramount because honestly, can I just be honest with you, that my emotions, my heart, my mind is fickle beings. That can be led astray. There are people 10 times smarter than me, a million times smarter than me all the time. And if I just went with the smartest argument, then I'll just go every direction all the time because they don't all agree either. I need the word of God to ground me. I need the word of God because I believe that our God is good and he wants to be known. And in his wanting to be known, he gave us this incredible gift that his written revelation of who he is to us. And so we take it. And we honor the God who gave us his word so that we can know him through it. Does that make sense? You guys with me on that? That little kind of side trail that I just went on there? Okay, just making sure. I do random things like that. He's making a claim to be king, and he's reading that claim in the Bible. Guys, I want you to understand that the Spirit will move and will walk in your life, but the Spirit will not go contrary to his written word that he already has given us in the, in the word of God. Can I get an amen to that? All right. So now let's look at the response of the people. What's the response? I think it's really cool, really remarkable. First of all, you notice Matthew is careful to talk about there being not just a crowd or great crowds, but he says the word crowds. For instance, verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches. So he's already drawing the distinctions between the crowd. Then in verse 9, he says some went before, some were following. So he's even distinguishing the people who were in front of Jesus already in the city and the people that were behind him following. Now, why is this important? It's because sometimes as preachers, we want to preach this Sunday, Palm Sunday, we say, oh, everybody's blessed is Jesus, Hosanna in the name of the Lord. And then these people are so fickle, five days later, they say, crucify him. Right? Have you guys heard that sermon before? It might not be the same people. Just throwing that out there. That sermon might not work as well. It could be some of the same people. But it might not have been the same people. I think some people were like, yeah, Hosanna. And some people were like, that guy's weird. <laughs> right? And the gospel authors never tell us it's the same people. As a matter of fact, the gospel authors never tell us the entire city blessed Jesus. In fact, if you look at the passage in verse 10, kind of, let's look at the way Matthew characterizes Jerusalem. He actually gives this encounter where he says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That's what he says, it was stirred up. Right? What, a, what an interesting word. What is stirred up? I feel like that's like a southern word, right? Is that, is that a southern word? Being stirred up? No? Okay. Well, I feel like it is. Got me all stirred up. Um, but you remember when the Magi showed up and worshipped Jesus, news got back to Jerusalem. And Matthew earlier, it says, all Jerusalem was troubled. It was, all Jerusalem was troubled. Now he says, everybody's stirred up. Everybody's a little jittery. Everybody's like, what's going on here? Not everybody's pro-Jesus. There's some people who are upset with Jesus. Obviously, we knew that. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they were upset with Jesus. So not everybody's responding the same way. Some people were excited. Some of these people probably were people from the uh, nearby environment. Maybe they knew, maybe they knew about Lazarus from, the, from Bethany, which was really close by. So they were like friends of Lazarus and Mary. They're like, oh, I know this Jesus. Yeah, I'm waving the branch saying Hosanna. And others were like, maybe there were some other people who were from Galilee. People who were pilgrims just like Jesus and his disciples were coming in from Galilee. And they're like, oh no, that's my man, a boy from Galilee. You know, like, they're, they're pumped up, they're excited. He's like, our little area of Galilee, you know, nobody cares about us, but we got, we got the miracle worker from Galilee coming in. And maybe they're the ones who answer, like, when people are asking the question, who is this? And they're like, oh, that's, that's the prophet Jesus, yo, he's from Galilee. 
You know, somebody probably like, he's from Nazareth. I'm from Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. You ever notice that one thing, by the way, in America? People like, like if you go to like concerts or football games or comedy shows, they're all like, where's everybody from? And everybody gets all proud of where they're from. Like, who's from Texas? Ooh! Nobody? Right? You guys know that stuff? Especially Texas people, by the way. Texas people love the fact that they're from Texas. Right? But I always wondered about that, because I'm not like, anybody here, like I was born in Philadelphia, who's from Philly? I'm like, woo? I don't know if I'm supposed to be excited. If you're offering a cheesesteak, then I'll get pumped up. But otherwise, I'm like, I don't understand why everybody's so excited about where they're from. Well, either way, side note. And so here they are, they're so proud. This is, this is my boy Jesus, he's from Galilee. And that's who he is. They're like, who is this? Like, he's a prophet, he's from Galilee, it's Jesus. But there's a lot of confusion over who this guy is. Now look at that answer that he gives. He says, he's a prophet. And that's true. But that's nowhere near enough, is it? I mean, you gotta say more, right? I mean, yes, he's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up mostly in Nazareth. That's a pretty decent answer. He's also from Bethlehem. You could have said Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth. You could have said uh, Jesus from the area of Galilee. But what were they missing? Why did they stop there? I mean, they even pronounced it Hosanna. They even pronounced the blessed name that comes. Why were they not willing to go so much further? He saw him riding in on the donkey. What held them back from saying, this is the Messiah? This is the king. Not just this is the Messiah. Not just this is the king. This is my Messiah. This is my king. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Why are you not willing to say, this Jesus is my Messiah? He's my king. He's what my soul has been longing for. That piece of me that's been empty for so long that needs to be fulfilled. The answer to my human dilemma, my human problem of needing to be known and to be loved and to have purpose. Why can't you go there? Do you see him today as your king? Is he just a good teacher? Is he a good worldview? Is he a good fire insurance policy to add on? Is he a good cultural thing to say, well, duh, we're a Christian. Or do you see him as your king, like he claims to be? And I don't know, it's hard. I know it's hard for us to understand the concept of king. I mean, we sing it, we say it, but do we get it? I mean, most of us in our culture, a king is kind of a foreign idea because we don't have kings in America, right? But kings are, especially back in the ancient Near East, kings are primary rulers over land and people. They decide what is good for the nation and the people obey. They set laws and they enforce it. Is Jesus your king? Here's what else kings do. They fight battles and make the tough decisions. They have a grasp of the bigger picture that you may not. They protect and provide for the people. They establish law and order and right and wrong. They are a source of your confidence and your status. So you can go to a meeting of nations, you can go as a representative, but if your king is, say, King, I don't know, King Billy, I don't know, King Billy's a terrible name for a king. <laughs> if king Billy comes in, you come in with like, I got the power of King Billy versus the power of King. There's a, there's a level of confidence you have based on the power of your king. I don't know why Billy came up to mind. <laughs> Do you know your status as a follower of a king? And does that give you the confidence 
to face the issues in this world because your king is more powerful. The question of Palm Sunday remains a question for us to consider this Sunday 2,000 years later. Who is this? That's simply a matter of interest to the residents of Jerusalem, but this is what we're being asked to answer today. Who is Jesus? And watch me pay attention to him. Who is Jesus? Why so many people put their lives under authority? Who is he and is he our king? Can I be honest with you guys? When it comes down to it, I am so desperately in need of Jesus to be more than a good luck charm, more than a set of good teachings, more than fire insurance, more than uh, some good thoughts, more than a good teacher. Because the way and the struggles that I see in life and the life that I'm going through, I need God to be personal. I need a relationship. I need a God who knows me, who loves me, and gives me purpose. I need a champion who can fight the battles I know that I can't win. I need a king who gives me confidence in a crazy world. I need a father who loves and protects me. And when it comes down to it, after I strip away my stupid sense of self-sufficiency and my silly pride, I realize that I'm ultimately still a needy child because this world brings me to my knees. And I thank God that Jesus is so much more. This past two weeks, guys, I'm just going to be honest with you, has been really, really difficult. We've already had, up to this point, COVID and all this COVID multiplier. I call it a multiplier because I feel like COVID is like that thing that like already the struggles you already have in life, like the, the issues, anxieties, and depression, you just, COVID just multiplies it by five. You know, by 10. Whatever number that may be for you, COVID's a multiplier, right? And so if you're already feeling lonely and then COVID happens, it'd be like, oh, that's just multiplied by loneliness and my isolation much more. Good job, COVID. You know, and there's so much more that exists and COVID's already been doing, doing a number to us, right? But a couple weeks ago, with, with the, the trauma that so many of my Asian American brothers and sisters have faced, on top of so many trauma that my African American brothers and sisters have faced, it's on top of all the trauma as a nation we've faced, has been hitting me hard. Not only that, just to be completely open and honest with you, um, really struggled with my kids in the schooling and trying to figure out what school is for them and is going to be for them. Struggled with my son's um, autism diagnosis and helping him and guiding him and just being there for him. And recently with all the health issues and people in our church and with Philip and surgery and it's been a rough couple weeks. And honestly, I had to, a couple times, just felt overwhelmingly, I'm not one to, to feel like this, but a couple times, just the past few days, I just felt overwhelmed. A little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear. And I'm not one to feel that way, but not by nature. And in this process, can I tell you guys that as I... Go, and that's my wife and I, as I'm talking to her, and she says, as she helps me lovingly, as a wife does, points me to Jesus. And as I go to him, can I tell you that if Jesus wasn't king, and if Jesus wasn't God, and if Jesus wasn't good, and if he wasn't everything the Bible claims him to be, then I would be hopelessly lost. But my anchor, my hope, and my confidence is this. 
that he is everything the Bible claims him to be. That in the midst of my hard times that I'm not alone in it. And that it's not my own skill, my own merit, my own hard work, my own intelligence that gets me through. But it's the confidence I have that Jesus has conquered everything that needs to be conquered through sin and, and, and death and on the cross. And he conquered it all. And then now my identity is that I'm a beloved child of God. And everything that happens here happens for a reason and a purpose of securing more glory. So that one day I will know the answers to it all. So until that day comes, I rest in him. Who is this Jesus to you? I feel like the cry of the centurion when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so for me, that answer to that question is, I believe, Jesus, you're a king. I have to. But when I struggle, will you help my unbelief? I want to close with the words of Marvin McMickle. And he answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is this? And he answers it like this. He's the son of God. He's the architect of the whole of creation. He's the victor over sin, hell, and the grave. He's the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is this? He's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God of Isaiah. He's the one about whom John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. He's the one whose birthplace in Bethlehem was foretold by Micah. He's the one after whom an entire floral shop could be named, the Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He is the Lamb of God whose blood washes away my sins. He is the pearl without price that placed an even greater value on our lives. He is the man they loved on Palm Sunday, condemned, killed, and buried on Good Friday, but who got up on Easter with all power in his hands. Who is this? Caesar dead and forgotten, but Jesus still sits on the throne. The high priest Caiaphas, who schemed to have him killed, is a minor footnote in history. But Jesus remains a central figure in the world today. Pontius Pilate washed his hands with water, but Jesus washed my soul clean with his precious blood. Who is this? Let's conclude that Jesus is the one about whom the triumphant hymn was written. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels' prostate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. That's who he is. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of the past, present, and future. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. He is the Lord of all. And the next time somebody asks you, who is this? This is what you can tell them. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is our God. And God, with that proclamation, we put all of our emotion, all of our self, all of our prayer of the centurion saying, God, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. God, we know that we are needy of you. God, meet us in that need. God, we turn to you. God, we thank you that Jesus, you are Lord, that you made that so clear. You made your message so powerful that you came in upon a donkey to show that you are our humble king who conquered through death upon the cross. 
and it's his victory that we proclaim our status as citizens of this king, as wonderfully adopted, beloved children into this family. That our status before you is secure. And our status in this world is confident believer, ready to face anything because you are with us. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. May every tongue confess, every knee bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hosanna, you, you come, Savior, you've come. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.